0: Please turn with me, whether in your Bibles or just following along in your bulletins, to the letter of 1 Peter. Uh, I think in those blue Bibles, page uh, 1014, you can follow along in the section that I'll be reading for us in just a moment. So last week, we started this wonderful letter, this incredibly relevant letter, and we saw very simply that Peter greets with grace and with peace scattered churches in very distant lands. And he greets them by calling them, by identifying not only them, but identifying really all believers that would be or were then or are now as elect exiles. And as we look through that passage, and this is a a way of saying it uh, that is convenient and in summary and, and that is creedal, He says, you are the elect of the Father, you are the ones who have been redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ, and you are the ones who have been renewed by the working of the Holy Spirit, and because of that, because of the election that I have given to you, the triune God has given to you, you don't really fit in this present world. You really have the character of being an exile, a stranger in the present world, wherever you live, you're more of a pilgrim and a sojourner. So that is the greeting. And today what we're going to do is begin the section that goes from verse 3 to 12, but it's going to take us a couple of sermons to work through that section. And One thing I'd like to note, and I didn't plan or or plan to sync this with what Joel just said a few moments ago, introducing Psalm 37, is that in this section right here, verses 3 through 12, we have no imperatives at all. We're not told to do anything. So... So Joel just told us that in Psalm 37, there are all kinds of imperatives, all kinds of things that were commanded to do there, but there's none of them to be found in verses 3 through 12. And that's a great little symmetry between these two passages. And it's important that Peter starts off this way for the readers then and for us as well. Now, if you are the kind of person who says, listen, just tell me what to do. Well, be patient. We're going to get there. Peter has plenty of instruction for us in terms of what to do. We'll get there in just a couple of weeks. But for now, and to start to begin this letter, it is far more important for the people of God to understand what we have received as opposed to what we are to do. And that's the why, that's the reason that Peter, like other writers, takes this extended time at the very beginning to introduce us this, this idea to us without telling us to do anything at all. So I hope that today we, with the original recipients of this letter, will be just, will be encouraged. We'll will receive the gift that, that, that in it, grace and peace will be multiplied to us. So let me read the section for you today. I'm going to focus on verses 3 through 5, but just for a little bit of context, I'll read the opening again through verse 6. The Word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Living hope, let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us. Help us to receive that which you have given. Do its good work within us as you have intended this portion of your word to do. Assure us, comfort us, build us up. In your name we pray. Amen one evening this past week, uh, Lauren and I were outside. We were on the patio, and we were sitting in one of our, uh, one of our favorite spots to sit. It was later in the evening, and I was sharing with Lauren something that was discouraging to me. It is perhaps discouraging to say that I can't even remember what that discouraging thing uh, was in and of itself. Uh, it's irrelevant, but whatever it was, it was something that was discouraging, and she listened to me, uh, and, uh, and she said, just a little while, just a little while, and I said to her, amen, because I knew what she meant. She didn't mean that, you know, that in a couple of days this will all be over, you'll be beyond whatever this particular issue is. She didn't mean that, uh, give, give it a month, and this will settle down, and everything will be okay. She didn't mean that at all. She was tapping into The rich vein of biblical teaching, even around the simplicity of that phrase, just a little while. She was tapping into Psalm 37. In fact, as soon as she said it, as soon as she said just a little while, I said, I know. I said, Amen. I said, In fact, Psalm 37 is in my text this week because the phrase is in my text this week. And you saw it, if you were paying attention in Psalm 37, you saw it right in the middle of that psalm there in verse 10, where it says, in just a little while, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. It's in our text today as well. And we said together, yep, it's one of our favorites. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. If necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Now, I'm not preaching on uh, verse 6 today. That will be next week. We'll look at that section that talks about trials and about testings. But I wanted to read it for us because it is the, it is the context into which Peter is speaking all of this. For, for these elect exiles to whom he is writing, the testing has come. Grief has arrived. The trials have started. He says, you have been grieved. There is, I think, perhaps at the outset of our Christian lives, or perhaps at various points along the way in our Christian lives, what we might easily and simply describe as something of a honeymoon period of the faith. It's a time where everything goes along pretty well, where everything seems kind of shiny, where all of the goodness of God is seen for us, and everything feels fresh to us, and relatively speaking, our lives are carefree. Peter's not addressing that time. If there is a time like that, that's not what Peter is talking about here This is not a letter to people who are on their spiritual honeymoon. No, he says, you have been grieved by various trials for a little while. Your elect exiles, grieved with various trials. Into that, Peter speaks these words. What are the first words you want to say? What are the first words you want to speak into that? Here's what he says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation. It's a doxology. It is a singing of praise God from whom all blessings flow. Peter takes scattered exiles, dispersed, who are struggling Christians, who are battered, who are bruised, and he takes them by the hand and he says, come on, come on, let, let's sing. Let's sing together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Come, he says, come and worship with me. Oh, come, let us together adore him, Christ the Lord. The world would look at a start like that and say, that's crazy. That is really insensitive. Peter, were you not listening? Peter, were you not processing what's going on with these people? Why would you say that of all things to begin? You're unfeeling, you're uncaring, you're inappropriate, you're unloving, your EQ is low, or at a minimum. It's a clumsy beginning. But for Peter, and for every Christian, the glory and the greatness of God is the place of worship, that is the place of rest, it is the place of comfort, it is the place where we actually find hope in this world, is as we, the people of God, gather together to praise God and to worship God, and to say that he is indeed a great God, a blessed God. The place to begin is the doxology and it is the place where Peter not only begins, but it's where he ends the letter as well. If you've got your Bibles open, you can open up to chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the penultimate ending of the book, and in verse 11 it says this, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's the end of all the instruction that he has given. Or if you take the actual end of the letter, in chapter 5, verse 11, the final greetings come after it. It ends with this. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That is the place to start. It is the place to end in terms of the comfort of the Lord. One writer notes it this way. Praise, quote, ...is the means to make sense of the paradoxical life of Peter's audience. It is the means to make sense of the paradoxical life of Peter's audience. This is our sense-making place. This is our sense-making activity that we're doing right now. As we gather together out of a world where not everything makes sense and we come to this place, this is the place, the place of giving glory to God, of giving praise to God, of saying, blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, where sense is made out of an otherwise senseless or seemingly senseless world in which we live. Peter is going to give advice. If you know this letter, Peter is going to give advice, and I'm saying advice, sorry, I don't mean that. Apostolic directive is the better way to say that. With respect to how you live in this world, that's going to be really hard for Christians to actually hear and to actually apply. For example, he's going to say, what credit is it if you, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you endure, if, pardon me, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you've been called. What? You might look at that and say, wait a minute, I've been called to this? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. It would would make more sense, wouldn't it, Peter, if you told me to overthrow the ones who are doing evil for the fact that I'm doing that which is good and getting punished with it? There are going to be some things in this letter that are quite paradoxical for us that in fact wouldn't make any sense for us until we come into this place. And this is the place, these are the songs that we sing by which we go, oh, right, right, right. I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ unto the praise and the glory of the triune God, right. This is the place that makes sense out of a paradoxical world in which we live. And in particular, as Peter goes into this section then, it is in celebrating God's graciousness is the mean, that we find the means for finding the comfort of God. That's the transition. That's the specific focus of our section then as it continues. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. And then he's going to tell us what that mercy has done. Okay? So Peter says, listen, we're going to come together and we're going to worship and we're going to talk about mercy. We're going to talk about the compassion of God. We're going to talk about the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. For Peter, everything flows from the mercy of God. And that's what gives you deep and abiding joy. That's why the beginning of verse 6 is there, in this You rejoice in all of these things that flow from the mercy of God. This is the place where you find joy in the midst of this world. So, God's mercy is the well from which we have been, according to this passage, God's mercy is the well from which we have been born again and born again into a living hope, into an inheritance, and unto salvation. That's the mercy. Mercy is the fount here, and these are the things that come out of it. You've been born again into a living hope with an inheritance and unto the salvation that God has prepared. Just four stunning, glorious terms for us to dig into. Born again. Born anew. By God's mercy, Peter here is not talking about simply, for example, a fresh start in life. He's not talking about, hey, listen, you guys need a new approach to an old problem that you have. In fact, Peter here is not talking about anything that we do at all. He's not instructing us to, hey, live as if you have been born again. Instead, Peter is talking about something that has been done to us. You weren't instrumental in making your first birth take place. That was done to you. And in the same way, Peter is saying here, listen, we are talking about what God has done. And so for Peter, in Jesus, by the work of the Spirit, we have a new father. We have a new family. We have been born again into the household of God. We have been born again into new life, into what he calls a living hope. We've been born into a living hope. And if you forget everything else from the sermon today. Walk away from here with the phrase living hope and mull over that. Peter likes this idea, this word living or live. In the end of the chapter that is before us, he's going to talk about the living word of God he's going to talk about Jesus in chapter 2 as the living stone he's going to talk about us as living stones he'll say we live unto righteousness we live according to the spirit for Peter this this that we now have this being born again allows us to have life we have come into that which is life indeed And in addition to the word living that Peter loves, he also loves the word hope. Because if we are exiled pilgrims in this world undergoing various types of trials, if there's anything in particular that we need, the answer is we need hope. And in fact, by way of just a teaser, the first imperative, the first imperative that we're going to run into in this letter is hope, is hope. It's not an imperative here, though. (laughs) Peter says, you've got it. You've got it. You've been born anew into this. Living hope is the characteristic of the new family that you have been born into. It is a hope that is secured not by our best intentions. It is a hope that is secured not by by our wishful desire for things it is a hope that is not secured by uh, having a disposition that is incurably optimistic so that we always think that everything in our lives is going to get better what is the security of having a living hope you have been born again into a living hope following the verse here through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and nothing less, nothing less has secured your hope than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our new birth, our living hope are bound up with the new life of the risen Jesus Christ. It can't be taken from us any more than life can be taken now from the risen and reigning Jesus Christ. Now let 's just pause for a moment and recall something about hope itself, uh, and that is that while hope is living and present, the object of hope, or the thing for which we hope is by definition something we don 't have yet, right so so we we don't hope for what we have, right? This is not only common world understanding, it's a common scripture understanding of the idea of hope. What you are hoping for, you do not yet possess, at least with respect to what Peter is saying here, you don't possess it in full. You have living hope, you have life, but you don't possess it in full. Peter says here, we have been born again and And when we look at this idea of being born again, we are what the Bible calls the first fruits of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has taken place. We have been born anew. We are new, but we are not yet finished. We're first fruits who are unfinished fruit, we haven't developed fully. We see inside of ourselves the old self, the old man, the old woman that is inside of us still. We see the remnants of the old life in one another. When we look at one another, we see that as well. And we see oldness in the world that is around us as well. The resurrection of Jesus Christ has taken place and new life has come into the world of which we are the first fruits of that new life but the world itself is not yet new. We're new. We're new. We have new life within us right now inside of our spirit, but the world is old. We're new in spirit, but the bodies which we inhabit are old bodies. The earth is still subject to decay. Our bodies are still subject to decay even if and while the spirit inside of us is growing unto the Lord. And the importance of understanding that is to help us to understand, oh, okay, all right, if I am born anew into an old world, it explains why you don't fit. It explains some of the paradox. The creation is waiting. It is waiting. The creation is waiting and groaning right now for the gathering up of all of the first fruits all of the people that are among the elect of God that are going to be saved the creation is an old tomato vine you're growing tomatoes right now if you're growing tomatoes right now your tomato vines are dying even though it's been warm even though it's been sunny your tomato vines are dying and there's a little bit of fruit still popping out on them and and the creation is like that it's an old tomato vine that still pops out fruit and it's waiting and it's groaning It's waiting for the time when the sun returns and all things are made new again. But it explains why we experience the sense of not fitting and also the various trials that we undergo. And Peter thus continues as he's working his way through this. He says, not only do you have hope because you've been born anew, but you, in addition to the hope, you have an inheritance as well. You have a new family, you have a new father, that's part of the being born anew, and here's the reality. Your father is A, very, very wealthy, and B, your father is very, very generous. And so Peter says, the inheritance is coming your way. Be assured, the inheritance is coming your way. Now, when you read inheritance, remember that in 1 Peter already, we've seen it in the very opening verses of this, Peter is going to take Israel's story, and he's going to wrap the Gentiles into Israel's story. He's going to continue to help us see how we're part of the work that God has been doing throughout history. And so when we read about an inheritance, it hearkens back to Israel's inheritance. This is Old Testament language that is being used here. And it harkens back to the inheritance of Israel as a nation, the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine. And it was an inheritance as a nation, it was an inheritance as tribes, and it was an inheritance as families within that particular land. All of the promises that God had made with respect to the land, you recall this from the book of Joshua. Joshua says, all of the promises have been fulfilled. Not one of them has been left unfulfilled. When we have now inherited this land, this is what God has given to you as he promised to give it to you. But if you know your Bibles or even even the briefest sketch of the outline of the history of Israel it reveals a huge problem. And of course, the problem is because of Israel's sin, because of famines in the land, because of enemies, and we could add a number of becauses after that as well, life in the land of the inheritance that God gave to his people was no picnic. It was never stable. It was never secure. They spent as much or more time outside of the land or struggling with enemies inside of the land or being rebellious within the land. They spent as much time outside of it as they spent inside of the land as well. In fact, one might look at Israel's inheritance, and this is actually the way you can describe it right from the same words from the Old Testament, as perishable, defiled, and fading. You could look at that. You can look those up and find them there. And one might describe the inhabitants of a land that, like that as as what? Pilgrims, sojourners, strangers. Listen to what David says. This is David at the end of his life. Solomon, his son, is about to be anointed as king. He's praying the land of Israel, as is probably at this point at its, can you say land is at its high water mark? It's at its most expansive point, okay? Israel has as much land as it will ever have, and David prays like this, for we are strangers before you and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is No abiding. David prayed that. David prayed. David's an older man here. And an older man has learned something. Wasn't easy being a king. Wasn't easy being the king appointed. It Wasn't easy being chased in and out of the land, all around my own land, throughout my entire life. And there's another problem as an old man. The other problem is there's no abiding there's no abiding. Uh, This is a shadow. It's it's a short time that we have here. David understands that Canaan was a type of the inheritance that is to come. It wasn't the true inheritance. It wasn't the final inheritance. It was a type and another inheritance is represented and anticipated and it's the one that we saw in Psalm 37 the meek shall inherit the earth. It's the one that is repeated by Jesus. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And it's the one that Peter speaks of both here and in 2 Peter as well. It is the new heavens and the new earth. It is the place. It is a land. It is an inheritance of perfect union with God, of perfect rest. And it is Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now Peter is writing to elect exiles. And essentially he's saying to them, Listen, you can't move there. Okay, you can't pack up your things right now and move to that place. And you can't make that place. You can either move to it and you can't make it here on earth. Why? Peter gives the answer because it is what? It is kept in heaven. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, sorry, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. Heaven is a safe place. It's guarded, it's garrisoned there for you. It is a place that is well-prepared, a place that is well-defended, a place that is well-cared for. It's a place where, to quote Jesus, thieves don't break in and steal and neither moth nor rust consume in that place where nothing fails, where nothing wears out. And Peter is saying, your citizenship, your country, your home, your land is there, kept, guarded, guarded by God for you. And So here, you're in exile because it's not your land. And as we move into verse 5, we see this glorious truth that not only is the place itself guarded, but you are guarded. You and your faith are guarded as well. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. You and your faith are guarded by the power of God. One might think, well, it's all well and good that the inheritance is kept in heaven, but what if I get killed? You know, when you think of an inheritance, what good is an inheritance to me if I'm not around to enjoy the inheritance? Peter says, no, 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 no. You're kept. As much as that is kept, you're kept as well. You are guarded. Your faith is guarded until that time you will receive that which has been promised to you. It is the salvation that is ready to be revealed. Here, salvation for Peter means all of the glorious wonders of our communion with God and the restoration of all things at the end. I have to say something here. When we hear the word saved or the word salvation, many of us think of it as a present thing, that we're presently saved, that we're presently in a state of salvation. And that's good, and that's fine, and that's true, and that's partly true. But what Peter is referring to here is something more holistic. He's referring to all of the blessings that come to the place where there are no more tears, where there's no more sin, where there are no more enemies, where wickedness has been dealt with finally and fully, where there's perfect peace and joy for all eternity. Peter is saying that's the salvation, and it's ready to be revealed to you. You understand? It's just, it's like hope. You don't have, you don't have the object of hope right now. You don't have, you haven't received the fullness of the inheritance yet, and you don't see yet the fullness of the salvation because it is ready to be revealed. You've got a part of all of those things right now, but we don't have the fullness of those things in and of themselves. But salvation is the word for Peter that brings all of this together. And for him, that salvation means a deliverance from death, evil, trials, pain, and suffering, and an entrance into the land, the place, the blessing, the fullness of all of God himself brothers and sisters, our living hope that we have as believers is not that tomorrow or next week or a month from now, some circumstance will change for the better in our lives, right? We know the Word of God from James. You you don't know what a day will bring forth. I don't know what a day will bring forth. Now, it's not wrong to hope that some difficult, present circumstance, will be assuaged, will be removed by God. But that's not the living hope that Peter's talking about. The living hope that Peter is talking about is one in which we have been born anew into that. And along with the living hope that is given to us, an eternal, imperishable, unfading, undefiled inheritance is coming with that as well, and it is unto a perfect salvation, nothing lacking in any single part of it. That's our hope as elect exiles undergoing trials, having been grieved in this world. It will be here in just a little while, just a little while, In the meantime, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hope well. Help us today to receive that which you have said. What more can you say than to us you have said? Lord, help us to rest in it. Guard the faith. Guard the mustard seed that you yourself have implanted into us that we might have new life. Guard us unto the day of salvation and the revelation of all things. We ask it in the great name of Jesus. Amen.